by being curious about what your practice is like right now, given we've had some time to talk and relate and uh, act in a very conventional way. And then to see what it's like to continue practicing because we're not going to stop practicing. And again, I would um, always encourage you to think of a talk as part of practice. Um, not, I mean, it might be entertaining, and that, that's always nice when they're a little bit entertaining. Um, but it may be even more beneficial when they're not. Um, meaning, learning how to stay very aware and present every, all the time is really part of what we're learning how to do here. Whether we like the experience or we don't like the experience, whether it's a pleasant experience or an unpleasant experience, or, or even if it's a neutral experience, which really pleasant and unpleasant are more um, dramatic than neutral. And so we tend to like something rather than no thing. So a little louder is being asked. So let's see, how is that better? Thank you. So this week we've been practicing, studying, learning about samadhi which when I was first um, practicing was, in my understanding, always part of Vipassana practice. Wasn't anything separate from it. Uh, And, you know, it was, I started when generally you always sat at least 10 days for any retreat. And, um, And you always started with the breath for one, two, three, four, five days at least, just to, to, land here and then you continue and the samadhi was always woven with the vipassana mindfulness and samadhi were not two different things and when i did a little more um, uh, another uh, teaching teacher um, and did more samadhi style practice It was still the same thing. It was this weave of practice. And they weren't thought of as two things. It was just, okay, there's samadhi. And you build the samadhi by being mindful of the breath. And you build the mindfulness by staying really present and attuned to that experience. And the mindfulness builds. And of course, everything else happens, which you all know, your mind, your heart your feelings, thoughts, beliefs, opinions, reactions, likes, dislikes, everything happens. And you start to be aware of all of that even while you're staying with the breath. And so there was, it was often talked about as samadhi as a path rather than mindfulness as a path. And, and one turned towards the deathless with a concentrated heart and mind. 
one turn towards, I'll say it a few different ways, because they're all metaphorical, what I'm saying, the deathless, or re turn towards reality with a composed, collected heart and mind, um, or with a, a unified presence to then continue to understand or realize or wake up to the Dharma, the truth of the way things are. And I believe this was already um, quoted this week, but I'm going to quote it again from the Buddha. For one who is joyful, there's no need for an act of well, will. It is, nat it is a natural law that the body will be serene for one who is joyful. For one of serene body, there is no need for an act of will. It is a natural law that one who is serene will feel happiness. One who is happy, no need for an act of will. It is a natural law that for one who is happy, the mind will be concentrated, com composed, collected, unified. For one who is concentrated, there is not a need for an act of will. It is a natural law for one with a concentrated mind to know and see things as they really are. The Buddha. And so we've been learning about this, experimenting with it, playing with it, discovering it, swimming in it. And one of the things that is sometimes a little surprising at this point is when I say the retreat's not going to end. I hope you all knew that. <laughs> Meaning the retreat well, maybe, maybe I could say it more accurately by saying practice is not going to end tomorrow when we leave here. Practice will continue forever. And the retreat is part of practice. And it's great to do a retreat. I, as, as I said, I love retreat practice and I appreciate it and you know, eternally grateful for this form. But the form is not the Dharma. The form is not what we're seeking. The form is a means to take us, to bring to us what we seek, to reveal to us what we seek. <clears throat> and really, um, this is a little... unexquisite, <laughs> a little uh, unexquisite, but I really think about it like, oh, going on retreats like going to the gym. And you go to the gym and you do, and I've been going to the gym, which I hadn't done in years. It's really interesting to go to the gym. Great samadhi practice in the gym, by the way. Uh, I'll say more about that in a minute. And you know, you go to the gym and you work your muscles and you build these muscles, but you don't build the muscles to stay at the gym. 
you build the muscle so, you know, if I wanted to pick up the bowl, I could pick it up. Or, you know, I can run faster, or I can do whatever's needed to do. And so gyms are beautiful, but they're, and, and it's great what they do, but it's not, it's not to be at the gym that we go to the gym, right? <clears throat> it, and the same, same perspective with coming on retreat which is how to build the, the capacity to see clearly and take that with us, not leave it at Spirit Rock. We, we, don't, we don't need it at Spirit Rock. We're selling plenty of that. Don't leave your clear seeing here. <laughs> really, take it with you. Take the muscle of kindness and awareness and intention and view and, and write speech and, and the, the ethics that we've been uh, cultivating together. Take them with you. Take, take the um, effort and, and uh, mindfulness and samadhi with you because that's why we're here, to let those muscles begin to ripen right here. Right here, we, we don't need them. We have great statues if we need that kind of stuff. And, and we all keep practicing ourselves. So, And so there's a certain component that we do, we are going to, we encourage you to take the whole Dharma with you, including the capacity to investigate what is the Dharma and what are we? And what is reality? And what, what is the truth? And what is the potential of what's sitting right in our own seat? And in every other seat, we're not limiting it to one seat. We're also able to start to see, oh, it sits in the other seats here, which is as amazing as the fact that it sits in this seat. And so one of the other words, I don't know how much we've used it this week, that I would like to put in your take-home pouch, um, is the mystery of the Dharma and of practice. Because it's such a beautiful discovery of the unknown that happens here. And mystery is one of the ways we could talk about the unknown or the amazing, or the discoverable reality that we don't yet know, is that it's quite mysterious that all of this is even happening on some level. And we all generally have some intuitive sense of that, intuitive feeling of that. And we also keep being touched, or moved, or uh, wowed, by the discovery of the reality that keeps showing itself or revealing itself. I've had a funny phrase in my teaching lately. I keep saying something like, oh, reality reveals reality, which is just such a wild thing because you, you, we, we're all reality. And more of reality keeps making itself known right here for each of us with practice. And so 
so I personally have a great appreciation of mystery and uh, um, and knowing and not knowing both as part of practice. And uh, and I really I love the 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 not knowing part of practice, the discovery part of practice, partly because I have an okay mind these days, um, and um, and. You know, I, I've learned a few things, I know a few things, um, but I'm so much more um, wowed by how much I don't know and how much there is to learn and how cool it is to keep learning and keep seeing and keep, there's more being, re reality keeps revealing itself. So, and talking about practice as being mysterious and dis a discovery. And, you know, we've talked a, a bit, yeah, I believe Sally and maybe Andrea, I'm not sure, I can't remember the specifics. We're talking about anicca dukkha anatta, right? Impermanence or change, uh, uh, dukkha, um, uh, uh, unsatisfactoriness or suffering, and anatta, not self the not-self nature. And I saw this from Stephen Batchelor, who I like very much. He said, repeatedly embracing the dynamic, precarious, and selfless flow of experience. And of course, he's, he's describing the Anicca Dukkha Anatta in his own language, right? Precarious, uh, a dynamic, precarious, and selfless. Repeatedly embracing the dynamic, precarious and selfless flow of experience gradually erodes this un ingrained conviction of our separate existence. To enhance this further still, it helps us let go not only of attachment to a fixed self, but of all views that confine and fix experience. To enhance this further still, it helps to let go not just of attachment to a fixed self, but of all views that confine and fix experience. This can be achieved by recognizing that however we describe it, even as dynamic, precarious, and selfless, what is happening is utterly mysterious. And it's such a beautiful understanding that he's offering us, right? This adventure of awakening, of discovery, of seeing clearly, of not knowing and knowing and not, and the knowing not being static. That's a really beautiful, important part, maybe the best thing I'll say in this whole talk, of, of reality. It's not static. Everybody got that? It's totally magical in a, one way, my language right now. It's totally just happening right now. The whole retreat is gone, right? It's totally gone. And here we are. The, it's not static. Any moment is not static. And of course, the opposite of static, of stasis, is ecstatic, 
and it's pointing at reality, which is ecstatic. True reality is not static. There's no stasis in reality, as far as I can tell. And so reality becomes, as we've used this word, an ongoing adventure. The Dharma is an adventure of discovery. <clears throat> and in that sense, the retreat is not ending because the retreat is not the end of the Dharma, of the aliveness, of the mystery of what's sitting in each seat right here. And to start to sense, feel, be aware of the living reality, the experiential reality that we call me, right? I mean, that's then the unstatic or ecstatic truth starts to be known directly with the kind of samadhi we've been cultivating. It's breathing you, this reality. It's thinking your thoughts. It's feeling your feelings. It's all happening in spite of you. <laughs> really, you could, you know, it's this very much a one way I like to point at things. You know, stop thinking. Please. <laughs> right, no, stop thinking. Can you do it? Are you in control of thoughts? Or are they happening on their own? Stop feeling, right? No, don't have any more feelings. We don't allow them at Spirit Rock anymore. Can't be done. Something is just doing itself. And so what we're playing with here is a continuation of what we've been doing with the concentration is investigating reality, investigating the way things are, investigating the potential of who and what we are. And so one of, the, one of my hopes is to encourage you to investigate what does it really mean to live a life, not of practice, but as practice? Live a life, you're, or I'll say it this way, life is practice. Put that in the foreground of your life, just like we put practice in the foreground while we're at Spirit Rock. Take Spirit Rock with you. Really, pretend you're at Spirit Rock for the next week and see what happens. It'll look a little different. You know, it'll be a little more complex. You'll be doing more. But don't, don't leave what you know here. And so the investigation, part of the investigation is, how do we do it? How do we make life a retreat? How do we make life practice? How do we go from uh, an idea, oh, we go to retreat, and that's when we do the Dharma or Buddhism or sitting, or to, oh, we practice 24-7. 
personally, that's totally the most fun in my experience. Life is amazing, amazing to be alive. And it's amazing to bring the kind of awareness and kindness and clarity and collectedness and unification of being and presence to our life, moment by moment by moment. What else do you want to do? If not that, whatever you're doing, you can do anything. It's an open retreat. It's not structured every 45 minutes your life, right? Which is just a skillful means to build the muscle of being aware and being unified and discovering what's here. And I, I'm giving a little encouragement to a 24-7 idea because it's possible, it's doable. But it's not doable if we don't start to have that intention. Or maybe it's doable, but it, in, at least from my experience, much harder to do if we don't kind of have a certain view and intention that changes our perception of reality and puts us in alignment with the Dharma so that we give ourselves to practice 24-7 wherever we are. And, and I'll say a little more. Let's see what I've got in, this, in, the, in the talk. Yeah. yeah, so investigate how to make life a retreat. Um, and when I say that, I don't mean you're supposed to look exactly like it looked here, right? It's not going to look exactly like it looked here. And it doesn't need to. It's the inner orientation that is the, has the potency to change life into a retreat. And, and I'll say a little more, but one of the things we will do is we're going to transpose what you know and what you've learned and bring it into your life. Bring it into the conventional world. Bring it into the everyday, the ordinary, the mundane. Because, because this, right, this is where awakening happens. And it doesn't matter where it is. It can happen anywhere. And so I want to keep, if I can, keep um, cutting the uh, belief that, oh no, we can't do it in our life, or we can't do, we have to do it we have to come to Spirit Rock or somewhere else. And, it's, and I'm not at all denigrating the, the benefit of Spirit Rock or other practice places or practice forms. All great. But not the story doesn't end anywhere. The story doesn't end at Spirit Rock. The story is right where you are. The potential for awakening is right where you are. <clears throat> and so one of the things that I looked at and have contemplated is the monastic tradition. What a beautiful lineage for human beings. 
and the Buddhist monastic tradition, if you go around monasteries or hang out with some of the monastics, what are they doing? They're doing 24-7 practice in different forms, in different ways. Doesn't mean they're sitting 24-7, but they're practicing 24-7. And some of them do a lot of stuff, do a lot of work, and you know, have all the ups and downs of human beings, because they are human beings. I've met them and talked to them. They're very human. You know, some of them are great, some of them are pain in the butt, just like people are. But but they're practicing. And so one can look a little bit at what they do, how they, I don't have a great word, uh, how they, um, um, yeah, I don't have a right word, but maybe somebody will help me later, how they segment life in order to make each thing practice. That they have certain rituals or certain practices you know, that they do in the morning and chant, let's say, chanting and bowing practices and devotional practices and then sitting practices and then there's work practice and then there's this practice and that practice and it's just, they just add the word practice onto whatever they're doing. <laughs> Which, it's funny, but try it this week. You know, you're going to do work practice, right? You're going to do family practice. You're going to do alone practice. You're going to do friend practice. You're going to do whatever you're doing, practice. And see what happens as you start to bring your view and intention in line with the Dharma, whatever you're doing. And of course I could say, and then of course you're bringing a certain kind of right action also into alignment with what's happening. And it's, it's quite beautiful to play with life as practice. And it's one of the, and it's, I believe, the cutting edge of practice for people for the most part. I mean, there's definitely a cutting edge to really start to realize the Dharma or to wake up to the Dharma, or to be enlightened, whatever, not my favorite word, but it's also a legitimate word. Um, um, but that's only the beginning, really. That's the beginning. Realization and then actualization. It's another step. It's a more, it's the, it's the living of practice. And so here, I'll read you. Um, this is a story about a Zen master who, from China, Wu Tzu, um, who said, I've practiced 20 years and now I truly know remorse. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you what I did with the language. I changed one word. Really, it said in what I saw, I have practiced 20 years and now I have truly known shame. And I didn't want to use shame because we have a very Western understanding of shame and not at all positive. It's very negative. And remorse is more understandable and it's not a personal, I feel bad about myself, but we can feel remorse about something. So I'm, I'm going to stay with remorse. 
I have practiced for 20 years and now I, am tru- I truly know remorse. Hearing this, the master Ying, Ling Yun, Wu Tzu's cousin in the Dharma, declared how marvelous these two words, no remorse, K-N-O-W. The remorse of which Wu Tzu speaks is speaks of is not, of course, the remorse of failing to realize the Dharma. It is the remorse of realizing the Dharma and yet being unable to freely manifest it in the activities of one's everyday life. Wu Tzu had come to awakening and obtained peace of mind, yet had not fully integrated his experience into the everyday practice of the Buddha way. And and what I've seen, just about for everybody, is, oh, that's the edge of our practice, right? Because we can come here and a lot happens here. And then how do we live our lives? How do we manifest? I don't really want to say it that way. I'll say it. Manifest the Dharma in our, really, in our lives. But really what I want to say is, how do, we, how do we let the Dharma just go through us in everyday life? Be, how do we become the Dharma in everyday life? And that, that is a beautiful part of practice. The realization and the actualization of the Dharma. And one of the help, a few of the helpful components are both right view, seeing life as practice, and aligning with the intention to practice for our life. And so understanding or seeing or um, knowing that practice is a process, is not static, is not a thing, but is a process can be very helpful for our view and understanding of what it means to live a life of practice. And of course, all the principles of the Dharma are in there, right? We're not, we know it's not just about getting what we want or not getting what we don't want. We we know it means we're going to live a real life with all its ups and downs. That even as the Buddha did, even after he was completely and totally enlightened, and, and at least sometimes I've heard it said, oh, there's every 5,000 years somebody gets enlightened like the Buddha did. And so I don't think we're there yet. Um, but if it happens to you, let me know anyways. I'm not, I'm not too uh, tied to time in that way. But, but part of what we're learning is the process of being with things as they are. Even in the complexity of regular life. Learning how to stay aware, stay awake, stay kind, and, and composed with all the ups and downs of being a human being. Feelings and thoughts and ideas and beliefs and habits and history and, and you know, and the craziness of human life. I mean, it's, in some level, it's pretty crazy out there. Meaning, you know, people aren't enlightened together yet. 
And so as Ajahn Chah would say, he says, we study the Dharma to learn the Dharma. We study the Dharma to learn the Dharma. We learn the Dharma to practice the Dharma. We practice the Dharma to realize the Dharma. We realize the Dharma to, to live the Dharma. We realize the Dharma to live the Dharma. And as I suggested earlier, we can look at the monastic community for a little inspiration or a possibility of how do, how do we do that in our lives. Because it generally won't just happen on its own, right? Our view, our understanding, our intention becomes really important. And then the kind of collectedness and composure and effort and awareness that comes with formal practice along with the foundational ethical ground that allows us to be here together as human beings and to be kind not just to ourselves but to others also and see the communion that we share as human beings. So, one of the suggestions I would like to offer, I wonder if I want to offer that a little later. Yeah, I'm going to wait. I'm going to say a little more about concentration right now. Um, so, given this week, one of the questions that's very normal is, okay, what does it mean to bring this composure, this collectedness, this unification, not leave it at Spirit Rock? How do, how do we do that? Is that possible? And it is possible, but because it's not static, it's not skillful to expect it to look the same in daily life as it looks here on retreat, where we are in fantastic conditions for simply being aware and unifying our attention and our kindness moment by moment by moment. And so that I found so helpful for ongoing practice is not knowing how it's supposed to look exactly in different places, but seeing what you discover because you become your own teacher in daily life. And we want that. We're happy to offer whatever we can, our guidance, our help here, but we're not going to go with you, you know, unless the Donna's really huge. But, <laughs> but probably not going to happen. <laughs> but... But really, really, but really, we want you to become the teacher. And it's one of the reasons why it's so great what is happening, that mindfulness has become so secularized. It's not my favorite thing, but I, I like it because everybody starts to see they can do it. And then you start to see, and especially if you've done some serious practice, which this is, 
you start to see, oh, you already know a lot. And you can start to use that. Let your own guidance come into your practice and follow it. And if you're wrong, you'll find out, which is fine, which is a fine way to practice. Mistakes, all good, all good. No problem with making a mistake. We learn from that. So um, be open to the possibility of what it looks like to be collected and composed uh, uh, tomorrow night if you go to the restaurant, you know, wherever you live, or if you're home with family, or if you're alone, because these are all places of practice. And see what happens if you begin to integrate a little more the various pieces of your life, the parts of your life. Create a driving practice for yourself because most of us are going to do a fair amount of driving. And I can give you a couple tips, but, but also you can go on the web now. It's like ridiculous, right? Just do mindful driving. And I, I haven't done that, but I would bet. <laughs> There's a lot about it already. You know, I'll give you my tip, <laughs> which I should probably put on the web. And, <laughs> you know, which is get in your car, sit right there at the steering wheel, and don't drive. <laughs> I'm, I'm being serious. Sit there for 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes and, and, and practice with your eyes open. So you get a somatic and kinesthetic memory of practicing before you add the complexity of actually driving. Because your body and your breath, you can practice right there with the body, with the breathing. You can begin to unify heart and mind right there before you have to deal with a more complex reality that you want to be totally there for. And so that is a, it's a good um, way to begin the practice of staying aware and awake while we're driving. And, and it's the same, I'll give you the same tip, my tip, um, about the computer, which is one of the places people are, every, everybody's doing computer. Anybody here not do computer? I would love to see that. that would, <laughs> Boy, you would get my bows and everything, but, but I'm not one of those people, right? I do computer. And, uh, so same principle. How can we get the somatic and kinesthetic memory of practicing that you have here now with your cushion? People associate it with these cushions or the chair or the, or the way you rig up your chair or whatever it is how to get that somatic kinesthetic memory, which is one of the great supports for samadhi, at your computer. Go to the computer, sit there, 10, 20, 30, 40 minutes, don't turn the computer on. But keep your eyes open. Because then, then you see, you, you start to see this experience rather than that experience. And that gives you this experience more solidly for when you do turn on that experience that we call the computer. And 
And also, you can make up a practice for anything. There's ways, it's, it's just practice. You're just bringing awareness and collectedness and composure and unification and body and heart and mind together. Which is all we, as far as I can tell, even conventionally, that's all we want. We want to be here. And, and the being here in Buddhism leads to more, leads to a deeper understanding of who and what is here. And then what can happen to who and what is sitting here and the realization that is possible. As Andrea said, you know, we, we do this samadhi practice. It's part of the liberating, the nurturance of the liberating force that is available to us here. And then, of course, you can make up your own with your family or with your lovers or with your friends or with your work or your political community or what, whatever it is, wherever you're drawn, whatever interests you, go there and practice there and see what happens if you're there. <clears throat> And, and of course, I, I'm assuming you know this, but use the principles we've been encouraging and you've been doing, right? The simplicity of being with the body and the breath. Just that. It's such a simple practice that one can do anywhere. And again, as I've said to at least some people, if you can't do the breath, if that's too refined in certain situations, just being aware of the body and bringing that samadhi uh, uh, component into mindfulness of, of body and breathing, both or either. <clears throat> and so the simplicity that is possible with the complexity. Hmm. Yeah. So here's one of my favorite people. Suzuki Roshi, and he's talking about what we're pointing at in terms of concentration and daily life. And he calls it limiting your activity, limiting your activity. And there's a beautiful chapter in his book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. And he says, the way to practice is to limit your activity or to be concentrated on what you are doing in this moment, right? Totally simple, totally what we've been doing here, right? Limit one's activity to be concentrated on what you are doing, what one is doing in this moment. Instead of having some particular object in mind, just limit your activity. When the mind, the heart is wandering uh, about Elsewhere, you have no chance to express yourself. When the mind and heart are wandering about, you have no chance to express yourself. But if you limit your activity to what you can do just now, in this moment, then you can express fully your true nature, which is the universal Buddha nature. And so he's pointing to this as daily life practice. Samadhi practice, 
starting to bring us into the direct experience of our nature, of the reality that is the ground of what is sitting in this seat, no matter what your name or what your identity or what your, what your particulars happen to be of, you know, father or daughter or son or, or mother or wife or, or non-wife or whatever it might be. Right? The particulars all stay here, but there's something more fundamental sitting right here that Buddhism is pointing at, that the Buddha pointed at, and people have discovered for thousands of years now. And again, from the, the view is important about how we understand daily life, worldly life. And Dogen, who we've quoted earlier this week, he said, those who see worldly life as an obstacle to dharma see no dharma in everyday actions. Those who see worldly life as an obstacle to dharma see no dharma in everyday actions. They have not yet discovered that there are no everyday actions outside of dharma. So our perspective changes as we practice. It's not that we're, we're making it happen. We start to see, oh, the reality that we've been exploring, discovering, practicing with here in this week, it's everywhere. And we start to limit our activity because it reveals it. Reality reveals itself more clearly when the heart and mind are unified. And I, I always, I can't actually um, explain this totally, I could, but I always want to say, oh really, heart, mind, body, because it's all right here. And the body has its own intelligence. And, and, and I'll back up what I'm saying by um, what I love is, what are sometimes called the three main centers, right? There's the head center, the eye of wisdom that is often pictured right here. There's the heart of kindness or, or wisdom, I could say that. And then there's the hara or the belly of awakening that is part of the body center that especially um, is pointed at in Zen and in the martial arts also. It's, it's all same center in, in uh, the Tao. It's called the, who, who pardon? The Dantian, pardon, is it Dantian here? Okay, and there was something, and also it's uh, in, in, in Sufism, the, the Kath center. It's the same center in all those traditions that's pointed at. And so starting to see, starting to have our view, our perspective be altered by our practice, then we start to see life as practice. And it's beautiful to be alive. And it doesn't mean it's always beautiful what's happening, right? Because it's, it's up and down. It's every which way. And that was true even for the Buddha after he was enlightened. He gets tired of people or irritated at people and 
all, he has all kinds of kind of human reactions, even though he's not bound to them. But he also, it's a, it's a, it's a life. He was a human being who, and here's the word I like even way better than enlightenment, he matured. He matured in a way human beings, he matured beyond the way we as human beings were used to maturing. Because you're all mature, we're all mature people. We've all achieved a certain level of uh, maturity. But Buddhism's pointing to, oh, that's not the end of what's possible for us as human beings. There's another level of maturity or awakening or realization that is possible. And it's so, I, I just keep seeing, oh, he was so mature. I, like the whole, the, the fullness of reality came through him. And with all its intelligence and kindness and skillfulness and care, wasn't him doing it. The whole him doing anything, that was not quite the way it worked. So, life as practice, meaning we start to see not just Buddha Dharma, we see the Sangha everywhere. We're all here together. And it's really an amazing thing to see it because we don't like everybody in the Sangha. Got that? That's, that's normal. But we're not asking you to like everybody. We are saying, oh, you might love everybody even though you don't like them at times because you see the humanness that we share. Even as Dalai Lama, His Holiness, says, he says, oh yeah, my friend's the enemy. Really, when he's talked about the Chinese at times, because of what's happened to Tibet under the Chinese you know, rule and being conquered by the Chinese. But he still says, oh, my friend's the enemy. Because he doesn't just see them as the enemy. He does see them as a problem. He's not Pollyanna about this at all, but he also understands the communion that we all share. <clears throat> and so I can assure you, again, this every once in a while I feel like, oh, here's a for sure thing I can tell you. Your life's still going to be difficult at times, okay? That's not what seeing life as practice doesn't mean it's going to be perfect or great or our fantasy about what a perfect life is. No, it's going to be a real life. And what's beautiful about life as practice is you can also be real with your life. This is again from Ajahn Chah. He... Uh, uh, he asked Ajahn Sumedho, who was, I think you mentioned Sumedho a, a few times. Um, he asked Ajahn Sumedho, who was one of his disciples, who started a monastery in, in England. He said, How are, how's the community getting along? And Ajahn uh, Sumedho replied, oh, people are getting along fine. And Ajahn uh, Chah said, hmm, well, there won't be much wisdom there. <laughs> Because he, he understands 
reality is where wisdom comes from, not the idealized belief it's supposed to be a certain way. And then, then we can live our life as practice, whatever is happening, because it is practice. <clears throat> So part of the actualization of practice as we take our mindfulness, our samadhi, our view, our intention, our, um, our ethics, our, our samadhi in the bigger sense of contemplative practice into life is see that it is what will begin to live our life. And uh, there's, a, there's a Zen story I like very much. Uh, you know, stu- student comes to the Zen master and says, what's the goal? And you could consider what your answer would be. What's the goal of a lifetime of practice? What's the goal of a lifetime of practice? Anybody want to say? What, what, what comes to your mind first? <laughs> wait, wait, one at a time. Wisdom. A what? A good death. A good death? Mm-hmm. More practice? More Happiness? Equanimity? Equanimity? <coughs> Not, have a goal. Not have a goal? Okay. So there's a lot of, you know, and also it'd be very common if you would have said freedom, often a goal. Sure heart's release, one of the beautiful metaphors for for awakening, nibbana, enlightenment, liberation, those are all very uh, common ways to point at what the Buddha has been teaching. The Zen master is asked, what's the goal of a lifetime of practice? He answers, an appropriate response. An appropriate response. And, it's a, and I love the answer because it's pointing to a living practice that is not static. It's an understanding. We become a living practice that responds to reality in its immediacy because reality is not static. And, and we can respond appropriately because we're, we're here. We're not in some idea about how we're supposed to respond or what's supposed to happen, or, but actually we're responding because our eyes and ears and senses and our knowing and our waking up and our freedom is all right here responding now to this. And I'll end with... Uh, Quote from Ashvagosha who said, The Dharma of the Buddha, the Dharma of the Buddha does not require a person to go into homelessness, meaning become a monastic. The Dharma of the Buddha does not require a person to go into homelessness or resign from the world unless she or he feels called upon to do so.
But the Dharma of the Buddha asks every person to free themselves from the illusion of self, to open one's heart, and to live a life of awakening. And whatever people do, let them put their whole heart into their task. Whatever people do, let them put their whole heart into their task. Let them be diligent and energetic. And if they live in the world, not a life of self, but a life of truth, then surely joy, peace, and bliss will dwell in their hearts and minds. This is from Ashvagosha. Uh, I don't know the actual, his era, but it was some hundreds of years ago, I believe. And so I have the same wish for all of us. May we put our whole heart into our life, into our practice, into our discovery of the, the Dharma, which is one of the translations of Dharma's truth, into the truth of what's here. And let's discover the Dharma together forever. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.